0: Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus.
1: Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about
0: their
2: extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank.
0: Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. And today on the show we have Rick Wilcox, who is Russell's father. We're really excited to have Rick on the show today. To be completely honest, he's not here because he's Russell's father. He's actually a Mountain Meister himself. Rick was the leader of the first group east of the Mississippi to climb Everest back in 1991. I sat down with Rick at Russell's house a couple of weekends ago and was thoroughly impressed with some of the things that he was telling me. So really look forward to talking to him today.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I grew up with him, it's Russell here, and I probably have only heard about 5% of his stories, if that, and so I'm not even sure what he's going to talk about today, but whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be very interesting. So we'll go ahead and start with his bio. Rick's career has been focused on serious climbing and guiding in the highest mountains Most notably is Rick's leadership of the successful New England-Everest Expedition in the spring of 1991. Since 1979, Rick has been president of International Mountain Equipment, the climbing retail shop and school in North Conway, New Hampshire. Rick also serves as president of Mountain Rescue in the Mount Washington Valley of New Hampshire and has held that position since 1976.
0: Well, thank you, Russell. And Rick, thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you giving us your time. That is a pretty impressive resume. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself before we dive into the interview?
2: Well, I've uh, been climbing pretty much all my life since uh, high school, rock climbing and then ice climbing, and then moved on into expedition climbing and found my niche in the mountaineering world sort of at high altitude climbing. When I was young and I read all the books, I was, also, I was very concerned whether my body would adapt to high altitude easily or not, and fortunately it has, which has allowed me to climb and guide at these higher peaks, and that's been a very rewarding uh, lifestyle for me. I also have uh, a, a neat family of Russell and Mariah and 2 stepsons. Uh, also, I enjoy building houses and fixing old cars, which, of course, all the kids had for a long time.
0: You touched on it a little bit at the beginning there, but when did you really realize that this passion for climbing was going to turn out to be such a significant part of your life?
2: When I was um, very young, my parents would take me out hiking around the White Mountains, and I saw cliffs like Cathedral Ledge in North Conway, Whitehorse, Cannon Cliffs. And I always thought to myself, wouldn't it be neat to go up on those cliffs and see what it's like up there? Also, I took an interest in reading books about mountaineering and knew that someday that I would like to go to the Himalayas and see these mountains that Sir Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing Norde climbed. That would be Everest back in 1953. Uh, In 1963, the Americans did the first ascent. There were more books. Now I was a teenager reading books about this high altitude mountaineering stuff. So uh, when I was in high school, I took lessons from the Appalachian Mountain Club on rock climbing. Uh, when I got to college, I met people that ice climbed, and uh, ice climbing kind, kind of came naturally. Uh, I was on the University of Massachusetts gymnastic team, so I was a little monkey, I guess you'd say, on the rocks. And that, that was my training was gymnastics, uh, which was sort of uh, not uh, a pleasure with the coach because he realized I was getting stronger legs and, you know, gymnastics are just supposed to be upper body. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I go mountain climbing in the summers and whenever I can. And eventually, uh, in my senior year, I let go of the gymnastic team to go to work for Eastern Mountain Sports and start uh, doing a little guiding, teaching people climbing and uh, eventually ice climbing and moving on to uh, running their climbing school through the 70s till 1979 when I Purchased international mountain equipment, uh, got involved in the International Mountain Climbing School, which I eventually purchased, and started leading guided expeditions uh, to South America, Alaska, and eventually over to Asia and Africa.
1: So you mentioned how you grew up uh, in the outdoors. How did you actually get into high-altitude mountain climbing? That's a pretty extreme thing.
2: Uh, As I uh, progressed in my profession as a guide and a retailer selling climbing gear and dealing with people. I spent most of my time in the uh, 70s and 80s in South America and Alaska climbing and knew in the back of my mind that someday I would like to go to the Himalayas. And in fact, I had a chance in 1985 to go to the sixth highest peak in the world called Choi Oyu, and Mark Ricci and I climbed uh, to the summit of very close to the summit of that peak doing the second ascent of a peak next to it. Uh, called Gazumpacon one. And at this point, we found out that we were able to climb to 8,000 meters, 26,300 feet, without bottled oxygen, which was a big plus for climbing big mountains, really big. And the biggest one of them all, of course, is Mount Everest.
0: So you decide you want to do Everest. I'm really excited to hear that story. But not many people have done it at this point. What kind of process is it to actually say, okay, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest now?
2: In 1986, Mark and I applied for the um, Everest Expedition Permit for the spring of 1991. We put together a team of eight New England climbers. Uh, Everest had never been climbed by anybody that was from the east coast of the United States at this time. All the Everest Expeditions, particularly the 1963 one, which was successful in getting the first Americans to the top of Everest, were based in Seattle In in west coast climbers. So Mark and I put together a team of these eight climbers and in the spring of uh, 1991 in March we headed over to Nepal. This was now my fifth Himalayan expedition. I had been on Makalu and Langtang, uh, Choyo Yu as I mentioned, and done some trekking and guiding of a peak called Island Peak in the Khumbu region near Everest. I was very familiar with the territory. By then I had um, discovered a guy named Ugin Sherpa who had a family of uh lots of Sherpas who would work for us on this expedition. Uh lots of the staff were his relatives, uh the mail runner, the four climbing Sherpas that would go up the mountain with us at least to camp, uh the high camp. We had uh, already worked with these people so we knew who they were. We arrived in base camp in mid April. We went to work on the mountain. Uh, climbing up through first the icefall, establishing camp one, two, and eventually camp three up to 24,000 feet. Now, there's a big difference between the way people climb Everest today and the way we did it back 20-some years ago. Uh, we were basically carrying loads up through the icefall. We were helping the Sherpas. We only had four to fix the ropes. We put in the camps. We did our own cooking. Uh, carried, like I said, our own loads. And this is a huge amount of work that we were doing to slowly work our way up the mountain. We were there over four months in the end. We got up to, um, the South Call in, uh, the end of April, early uh, May, which is our high camp at uh, 26,300 feet, 8,000 meters, and prepared to go to the summit. Uh, we made an attempt uh, during the first week of May, but the winds were blowing at 100 miles an hour, the temperature's minus 40, and we were not able to leave the camp at Camp 4 at the South Call. So we came all the way back down to base camp and wondered what we should do. Uh, some of the people wanted to go home, one of them actually left, and uh, four of us went back up on May 10th, and we went up to Camp 2, which is at 22,000 feet, and we realized that the problem with the wind was the jet stream. And in May, the jet stream will move to northern Tibet, and we just needed to wait and be patient. And on May 13th, the jet stream moved. We moved from Camp 2 all the way to Camp 4, which is at the high camp at the South Call. We spent a rest day there at Camp 4. And at midnight on May 15th, which just happened to be Mark Ritchie's birthday, we started for the summit. Now I was 43 and Mark was just turning, uh, 33. He's 10 years exactly younger than me, just about. And we headed up at midnight, uh, for the summit and four of us uh, reached the summit. First, Mark Ritchie and Yves Lafarre reached at 8.30 in the morning. They're on top for an hour. And then I arrived shortly followed by Barry Rugo about 10, 15 minutes behind me. And we stayed on top for an hour. Uh, leaving the summit around 11 o'clock in the morning. We were all back at camp that night at the uh, South Carl, descended to camp two the next day, and the next day back to base camp. So we all got down with no frostbite, um, very successful expedition, four out of the eight climbers, summiting, and uh, we felt pretty good about that.
1: Just to kind of go back a little to when you were preparing for this You said that you had a a team of eight. How did you come up with that team, and did you really rely on everyone going up to the summit?
2: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Originally, in the late 80s, like in 88, 89, when we were putting the team together, we we actually had 15 members. And in the uh, fall of 1989, I got a letter from the minister of Mountaineering in uh, Nepal that said that I had been given permission to climb Everest by the Hillary route, which is the South Ridge, they call it, that I would be there uh, for that time period from March till June. And uh, one of the few permits given out that year uh, for the mountain, I went to the team of 15. And I said, I need uh, some money. Now I need a thousand dollars a piece, And I need a commitment that you're going to go on the trip because the permit back in those days was $5,000. And I mentioned there's a lot of differences with the way they climb it today. It's $10,000 per person now. So that would have been $80,000 by today's permit prices. And most people pay between uh, $50,000 and $100,000 to climb Everest now with a lot of Sherpa power and guides and all kinds of things. We, We were just there alone. Uh, there was one other group of Americans led by uh, Ed Vistas, a famous American high-altitude climber. And so we kind of worked with him, and we basically did most of the work on the mountain with four Sherpas, and that was it. Sherpas never went above Camp 2 sleeping. They carried a few loads to Camp 4, that was about it. So getting back to the team, uh, only uh, eight of the 15 people actually sent in the money and said, okay, I'm willing to commit to this trip. So I sent the money in the $5,000 for the permit to Nepal and secured the permit. And at that point, we had our team uh, and prepared to leave, you know, in the fall of actually spring of 91. And if you remember, there was a desert storm war going on right then, and they just kind of solved that problem in uh, February and March, just before we left to, to go to uh, Asia. So that was, that was nice, but that was a little scary. Um, but those were the eight climbers that were there. They all contributed to the summit effort. Um, Mark Chauvin was up uh, at the South Call with us at one point. Um, uh, We had uh, Dr. Mike Sinclair and Dr. Dick St. Ange, They were both keeping us healthy and helping a lot. And um, Gary Scott. So it is a team effort. Absolutely. And um, if you look at the 63 Everest expedition for the Americans, uh, it took 90 climbers to get two climbers to the top of Mount Everest at the beginning. So, Getting 50% of our team to the top was was pretty remarkable for its time, and we only paid about $12,000 a piece to go on the trip, so it was a cheap trip. We did a lot of work, and uh, it came out fine.
1: There's this conception I feel like that people have with Mount Everest, and you you get to right before the top, and there's all the the bodies and the oxygen tanks. Would you say that 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 was really a a shocking moment for you to see some of that, or was back in 1991, was that really not as big as it is today?
2: I would say we were thoroughly prepared for what we saw up there. In 91, the South Call, the last campsite, had dead bodies and hundreds of oxygen bottles and basically just a dump. Um, A lot of that has been improved upon through... Uh, an awareness that continuation of those activities is not going to be good for the mountain or good for climbers or anything. Uh, As we climbed the ridge to the summit that night, and we saw the dead bodies along the trail, it's not a trail, it's it's a route in the snow and ice. um, They're sort of like trail signs. For example, Ray Janae's body is at about 27,000 feet. And by seeing him, we knew we were going the right way. We knew about what altitude we were at. We were able to check the time make sure we were climbing fast enough to reach the summit before our turnaround time, which would have been 12 o'clock. Uh, by making the summit at eight 30 and nine 30 in the morning, we were uh, very well ahead of that schedule, which is very comforting psychologically rather than being, let's say an hour behind schedule uh, when you're only halfway up, knowing that probably you're going to have to turn around real near the top or risk your life to continue on past the turnaround time. And that's where people die because of the um, clouds and the wind that come in in the afternoon, they're not able to get back down. And that's the story behind a lot of these bodies. And we knew that, and we knew that no mountain is worth dying for.
0: All right. So first of all, there are dead bodies while you're climbing to the summit of Everest. I did not know that.
2: Yes, it's very hard to dispose of dead bodies um, on the mountain because they kind of froze into place. Sometimes you only see half of them sticking out of the snow or occasionally like a boot. Sometimes you see two people sitting on a ledge, frozen. They've been there for years. Um, and, and these uh, people, and and imagine a headlamp coming across, let's say, two bodies sitting on a ledge um, at 3 o'clock in the morning when it's dark everywhere, and all you see is these two people all of a sudden in your, your vision. Um, knowing who they are, where they are, and how they got there is a big difference between that and, like, walking down the street in Boston and coming across a dead body, which might be quite shocking. Um, no, we were thoroughly prepared to meet these people. Uh, and we knew their stories and we knew the reasons that they were not able to get down. And every one of them pretty much was by overextending their physical abilities and not uh, adhering to a turnaround time, which is usually 11 or 12 o'clock. Um, after 12 hours of climbing, if you haven't made the summit, it's time to turn around, and go down. Also, every day, because of the sun, you get clouds, you get wind in the afternoon. There's no wind at night. This is when the jet stream was away, which it had uh, moved away for the summit climb. Uh, these are things climbers know and have to uh, kind of play by the rules. Or, uh, as they say, there's old climbers and bowl climbers, but no old bowl climbers.
0: <laughs> wow. You had to nail it down to one specific lesson that you learned throughout that experience or maybe a trait that you gained as a result of it, what would that be?
2: Well, I I think we had a lot of um, persistence. There were seven expeditions on Everest, and after that first attempt that we made and some of the others were making attempts on other routes, pretty much everybody went home. And we found out that being uh, patient and persistent, not going home early but kind of hanging in there, uh, with all that hard work of going all the way back up the mountain to the high camp again, which is a huge effort, um, it, it paid off. And and so, uh, if first you don't succeed, you know, try again. Uh, don't give up too easy.
1: Well, with that in mind, we're going to move on to something that you're involved with today. Could you talk about either one brand or organization and what kind of impact they're making on the climbing industry?
2: Well, in terms of making things better for climbers, there's a company called Las Sportiva, which makes excellent mountaineering boots far superior to the ones that I used on, let's say, Mount McKinley in the early 80s, uh, my first couple of trips to the Himalayas, and even on Everest. Uh, the boots are always an issue. People are always freezing their feet and getting frostbite. And Today, this company has just developed some fantastic boots. They're not cheap. A typical Everest boot would be around $1,000 now, but there's a lot less injuries and a lot less uh, problem with foot freezing uh, than back in the pioneering days, I guess, of earlier mountaineering.
1: Would you say that's your most important piece of uh, equipment is the actual boots during your expeditions?
2: I would say it's number one on the list. Clothing, there's a lot of variations. I mean, some people might wear a one-piece down suit. Other people would wear layers with a down jacket, and down pants maybe. We had one-piece suits. They weren't big puffy suits, but they were really nice. So there's lots of options with clothing, gloves, mittens, you know, goggles, things like that. But when it comes right down to footwear, uh, if you don't have that right, you're not going anywhere on the mountain.
1: Talking about La Sportiva, is there one specific product that you could talk about that uh, really highlights uh, how the average consumer could use that.
2: Absolutely. Uh, La Sportiva makes everything from flip-flops to Everest boots called the Olympus Mons. The flip-flops are you know $25 and the Olympus Mons are $1,000 and they make about 40 or 50 different kinds of products for rock climbers, ice climbers, and backpackers. And the product that I would recommend uh, to the general public this would be people that are normal hikers in the White Mountains, for example, doing three-season hiking, not, you know, using winter gear or winter crampons or anything like that on a shoe, would be their medium-weight hiking boots. And one in particular, which here at our store at International Mountain Equipment is a best seller, is called the Explorer. The Explorer, it costs $180 right now, it's an extremely lightweight, medium-weight hiking boot, which... I've used on Kilimanjaro. I've used it trekking in the Himalayas. I've used it on my hikes in the White Mountains, uh, up my Washington three season. Like I say, as long as you're not getting into winter conditions, uh, it's a great product. And we sell just tons of it. It's our number one selling product here in the store. Everybody uses them. Everybody likes them. And they're just they're like sneakers on your feet, but they're giving you support of a medium weight hiking boot.
0: Great. Thank you, Rick. And to our listeners out there, we'll be uh, posting a link to this product on our website. If you're interested, make sure to go check it out. And as well, we'll post a link to International Mountain Equipment. And uh, obviously, what you've shared with us so far has been truly inspirational and fascinating. If this inspires us, what inspires you?
2: I love the big mounds of the world, but I love the White Mountains, which I consider base camp. So what do I do here when I'm in North Conway and I have a day off Well, I may hike up Mount Washington? But Mount Washington is crowded with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, particularly in the summer that want to climb up there. And there's an auto road and a train and a, you know, observatory on the summit. It's a busy place. So what I'm more apt to do is to go to a place called Mount Katahdin in northern Maine with my wife, Celia, and just kind of go back into the forest, into the woods, um, back into the northern Maine woods where we don't see anybody. Our, our record up there is nine days uh, without seeing a single person uh, on the trail. Uh, that was in November on a Appalachian Trail section called the 100 Mile Wilderness, which is, you know, in the summer months would have a lot of people. In the summer months when a lot of people are around, uh, we might go to the northern Kelkenny, which is north of my Washington, go to a place where, you know, we know we can camp and we'll be alone. Uh, The other passion that I have for the mountains is uh, I'm not able to write a check to go off here and go off there and go to all the mountains in the world. So I developed a guiding business. Uh, We call it international trekking, which is, as I've gotten a little older here, we're doing more trekking and not so much big mountain climbing. But like over my career, I've guided Uh, a lot of big mountains in the world, but just to be there, even with clients uh, in the mountains is just uh, fabulous for me. Um, We're leaving April 15th to go to the Annapurna range for a month with some clients, uh, make a few dollars, but more than even the money, um, we'll be back in the big mountains of the Himalayas, uh, living in tents, uh, eating really good food, getting really good exercise and seeing spectacular scenery. So that's kind of the passion of my life is to travel around. There's a few more places I want to see. I've never been to Australia. I've never been to New Zealand. Um, In Antarctica, there's some places I'd like to go. Um, I guess they call that the bucket list. So I'm working on that a little bit. I haven't figured those out yet, but I will. Um, So the guiding has been good for me and uh, some of the trips I've just taken on my own like Everest has been good for me. So I I love all the facets of climbing. I like hiking, rock climbing, ice climbing, uh, what they call alpinism, like climbing in the Alps, climbing things like the Matterhorn and Mount uh, Blanc or something like that. And then, uh, of course, the, the big mountains, which I consider my niche in the, in the big world of climbing, um, you know, Pakistan and Nepal, India, places like that where the big mountains are. Uh, I love all those countries. I have friends in all those countries, and uh, look forward to every trip I can take to those countries.
0: Wow, nine days without seeing anybody—that's pretty impressive. I could probably use a trip up to Maine to get away from Russell. But
2: yeah, it's um, it's amazing that you know once the thru hikers from the Appalachian Trail summit Mount Katahdin, which is mid October, it it becomes quite the quiet wilderness area up there, and along with, they call it the hundred mile wilderness because you don't cross any roads or anything for hundred miles the last little stretch of the Appalachian Trail. So we decided to go up there in late October, early November one year, and we had a great hike, and we were out eight nights, nine days, and didn't see one human. It was great.
0: What do you believe is the biggest issue in your discipline, and what steps need to be taken to solve this?
2: The biggest problem we're seeing in the mountaineering world now is that certain mountains, I'll give you an example, Mount Washington uh, are getting extremely crowded, uh, the seven summits, the normal route on Everest, uh, Mount McKinley, uh, Aconcagua in Argentina, Alvarez. uh these highest peaks on the continents are extremely busy where the second highest peaks on the continents people don't even know the names of and, and how they ever climb. Uh, so we want to try and spread some of these people out a little bit, but the problem is the household names of uh, McKinley and, and Everest and Mount Washington mean more to people than Maybe climbing Mount Adams, the second highest peak uh, in the White Mountains. Um, every weekend and even weekdays, uh, virtually hundreds of people are now climbing up the Lionshead Trail on Mount Washington to the point where they're even putting fixed ropes. This is winter ascents right now. Fixed ropes on some of the sections. Uh, uh, people up there with the wrong kind of gear in the winter. Um, as uh, I was mentioned in the introduction, the mountain rescue is something I've been involved in for a long time. Um, and we've had to five times this winter go up and bring down groups that were not prepared properly, got lost at night, in, you know, very Arctic windy conditions, serious conditions. Uh, so getting people prepared properly for climbing, uh, getting them spread out a little bit and uh, things like that, I think are the challenge for the future in climbing. Uh, it's no fun to go up and stand in line behind, 50 people trying to go up a section of the trail in the winter, thats it's no good for anybody. And uh, a lot of the guide services are, you know, taking a lot of people up these routes and we just need to offer more opportunities for people in the mountains and spread them out a little bit. There's plenty of mountains. Like I say, you can find places where you can go and you won't see anybody uh, just to educate the public to other things than the seven summits or Mount Washington or Mount Rainier places where, people tend to get
0: piled up. Yeah, it's, it does seem like a very big issue. And there needs to be that education and that marketing aspect to know what these second highest peaks are. And I encourage our listeners to go do some research, find what that second highest peak is. I think that's a, a good point that you make.
1: Yeah, what is the best resource you'd say to do the right kind of research for these mountains to make sure you're either climbing the right peak and also with the right equipment?
2: Well, there's uh, two ways you can go with that. The American Alpine Club's uh, library on all the mountains of the world and all the American Alpine journals they've ever printed are all online now, so you can click on Mount Logan, the second high- highest peak in North America, and find out how to climb it and how to put together an expedition and what uh, companies will fly you into base camp and how long it takes and all those kind of things. Um, even back in 1970, I did the 15th percent of Santa Mount Logan, the second highest peak in North America, uh, when McKinley had been already climbed over 2,000 times. So you can see that that's going to give the climber a much more of a wilderness experience, much more of that experience like we had in Everest. Uh, last year, over 1,000 people attempted Everest, and back in 91, it was like 25, um, You know, with only nine people making it for the season. Um, so... That's a very good resource, the American Alpine Club. Uh, of course, other resources would be reputable outdoor uh, companies like ours here at International Mountain Equipment. We can um, consult with people uh, on uh, various um, projects they're interested in. If somebody wants to go climb a particular peak in a certain mountain range, um, basically, if we haven't been there, we can find somebody, a friend. Uh, an acquaintance that has and get that person some first hand information on what the prerequisites would be for skills and the type of gear they need, the time and who's going to facilitate maybe flying them in or, uh, who has the burros or the mules or the yaks or, you know, how to do it. So, um, that, that would be their, their best sources. Um, hopefully we might sell them a few pieces of gear, but we're more than glad to We love talking about the mountains and we're more than glad to go over people's plans and give them the benefit of our experiences.
1: That's great. Definitely have those resources on our website. What's the best way that our listeners can connect with you?
2: Just pick up the phone and call, you know, International Mountain Equipment, throw them seven days a week. We only close on Thanksgiving and Christmas. We'll be glad to answer the phone. And uh, if somebody's serious about an expedition or a certain type of climbing and they want to make an appointment with me to come up and sit down for a couple hours and go over maps and shots and logistics, I'm glad to do it. I just like to do it by appointment so that we can get good coverage in the store here while I'm chatting with people so uh, other customers don't get ignored. So that's easy to do. They can email us at ime-usa.com. We have a website that they can go on and look and see all the contact information.
0: Thank you so much for spending the time with us, Rick. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I know Russell has too.
1: Hello, Meister fans. We need some help. And if you guys are interested in helping, there's a very easy and specific way you
0: can. It's true. We really want to be transparent with our business decisions. So we're going to tell you exactly how and why you should help us. A huge source of growth for podcasts is this iTunes new and noteworthy section. Only podcasts within their first eight weeks of launch can make this section. And it really exposes and gets the word out about our podcast. Yeah, Ben and I have
1: heard it can help grow your
0: podcast 300%
1: in those first eight weeks. And that's just huge. But we really need your help. There's two main drivers that can help us. Five-star reviews through iTunes and then also just subscribing and downloading, listening every day. It's no cost
0: to you. We need you to do two things. Subscribe to our podcast, so go to iTunes and subscribe. And also leave us a review. And if you'd be so kind, that would be a five-star review. Thanks for listening.